Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. But this week, we're actually bringing you something slightly different, a behind the scenes of Christmas at the Naked Scientists. And around this time of year, you know what it's like, a little dark and a little chilly outside. Crikey, it's freezing outside. I can't wait to see what the team has planned for Christmas this year. Where is everyone? Chris? Sally? Otis? Katie? Julia? Trish? Huh, that's weird. What the heck? I really can't stay. Otis, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But Otis, it's cold outside. What on earth is going on? Harry, we don't have any presents. It's okay for me, though, Harry. All I want for Christmas is you. Oh, this is serious, Chris. Has anyone had a look outside round the back of the studio? What, you mean where the treetops glisten and children listen? No, I checked there earlier. Nothing. Has anyone seen or heard from Santa Claus recently? I saw Mummy kissing Santa Claus. Uh, he's not been active on Watts Pole in days. Oh, crikey. What do you think Christmas Day is going to be like without any presents? What, possibly everyone dancing merrily in the new old-fashioned way, perhaps? Chris! No, seriously, it's okay, everyone. I tore up your Christmas lists. (gasps) You'll be sorry, Chris. How Rudolph of you. You're a rebel without a clause. Come on, what's with all the resting Grinch faces, team? I've got a much better idea. That's a Santa hat? Exactly. But wait... There's myrrh. Just see what I did there. This year, we're going to take part in a festive science experiment, what I'm calling Chris's Naked Scientist Secret Santa, or CNSSS for short. I think that name needs a bit of work. Quite possibly, but pop a Christmas-related science question you've never been able to answer before into the Christmas hat. Whoever gets it from the bunch has to figure out the answer for you. I see what you did there. That's a great idea. I told you, Snow. Well, don't just stand there. Come on, write your questions down. Let's get them in the hat. In they go. There we go. That's the lot. Right, let's go around the room and dish out these festive questions. Got mine. Yes. Love at frost sight. Nice. Finally. I'm so excited. And that leaves me with the question for... Well, you'll have to hang around for a little bit and find out. Well, on that note, let's listen in and see what Chris is actually up to. Now, he has to answer Julia's question. Which is better for the environment, a fake Christmas tree or a real one? Hold on, I don't know about you, 
but it sure sounds to me like someone's rummaging through their decorations. Now, I have recently moved house. One of the great virtues about moving house is that it makes you pack everything up nice and tidy in boxes. One of the disadvantages of moving house is that you then have to find out which box you put stuff in. And the box I'm looking for is the big box that's got my Christmas tree in it. And, aha, this is it. Ah, there we go. Now, the story of my Christmas tree is actually one I got about 20 years ago when I moved into a house that a previous person who had rented there left behind. And it was such a good Christmas tree in such nice condition that it seemed criminal not to use it. So I've hung on to it ever since and it still looks pretty good. So I have had, for the last 20 years, a plastic Christmas tree. I've also got the tinsel, so let's take some of that. And here's the baubles. Right, so the question is, my plastic tree or a real tree? I think I need to go and check out the opposition and find out what I'm up against. So this is a, a sort of farm and agricultural and garden machinery place that also, I've seen this big sign outside when I've been going past, it says Christmas trees. Hello? Hello. Are you flogging Christmas trees? Yeah, we're flogging the trees, yeah. Are you looking for one? Yeah, what can you show me? Yeah, we come outside and have a look. What's your name? I'm George. George, I'm making a radio programme. I hope you don't mind. This is to answer the question, what's best, a fake tree or a real one? OK, yeah, go for it. Are you a fake tree or a real tree man? Oh, I've got to be a real tree. I've got these nice, beautiful Norfolk Christmas trees. Are these local, these then? Are, these are grown, uh, grown in Norfolk, and um, they're the Nordman first, so they don't drop the needles. The beautiful smell. Hang on, I'm going to give uh, it a sniff. That is nice, actually. What's that, six foot, eight foot? That's about an eight foot tree, that one. And how yeah. much is that? Uh, that one's about £80. How much use will I get out of that? I mean, will that stay looking nice for a while? or do Oh, they... it'll be right through till, the new, till you want to take it out after Christmas. And what do you do with it when it's end of life? Do you take them back? The local young farmers club take them in and um, they'll recycle them, or you can just take them to your local recycling centre. Can I show you my tree? If you and then like. you can tell me what you think. Then you, then we can make a valid comparison. Because you've shown me yours, I'm going to show you mine. Yeah, all right. It? Got it in the car. That's it. What do you think of this? Well, what can you say? <laughs> Are you not impressed? No, well, it's all don't worry, a bit plasticky and a bit... Well, it is a plastic tree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, yeah I can't fault your analysis. <laughs> I thought you were going to comment on the size. No, but size isn't everything. <laughs> You said it. But, um, I mean, mine ha- does have the tinsel, so Yours I suppose that's, that's one bonus, that's isn't it? That's true. Yeah, that's but, true. I mean, something like that, that has been used for many, many years, mm. and you pay for it once, whereas mm. if you buy a real tree, you, you have got to keep buying them year after year, haven't you? True, but it's some people like to have a real tree, and I'm in that camp. How many have you got? So if I do want to come back and get one, do they, do, they are nice. How many have you got? We're down to our last three. Three? 
Yeah, three. We had 120 at the end of November when they came in and they fly out the door. Is that normal? Is it, is it a big year this year or is that sort of par for the course? That's par for the course for us. Yeah, we, we just have a have 120 or so a year and when they're gone, they're gone. Bit of fun at the end of the year. We're back home now and um, just contemplating my plastic tree. I have a confession to make. I did end up buying George's tree in the end. He's dropping it off this weekend because it was very nice, I have to say, and I have never in all of my adult life actually ever owned a real one. So I felt the family deserved a bit of a treat. Now what that means is that I will own one of about 7 million real Christmas trees that are cut in the UK every year. Most of them grown here too and that is the wrinkle with fake trees because the majority of those have travelled all the way here from China and so they arrive with a much bigger carbon footprint than my locally grown one will have. Then there's also the recycling question. At some point my plastic tree is going to give up the ghost and that means it'll end up in the bin and therefore there will be a landfill cost. And even if the material is reused, there's still going to be a carbon cost to recycling that. My real tree, on the other hand, as George said, can go to the young farmers who will turn it into wood chippings and use that to line paths. And as those chippings break down, they'll just release back into the atmosphere only the CO2 that they took up from the air in the first place. Now, according to the Carbon Trust, a seven-foot fake tree is responsible for about 40 kilos of greenhouse gas emissions. And that means you have to use it for at least 10 Christmases to be environmentally better off than buying a real one. But the data from the retail market suggests that my 20-year-old plastic tree is a real outlier. Most fake trees that we own get used only an average of four times before they go in the bin. So the bottom line is it looks like George is right to be a real tree man, unless you hang on to your fake tree for at least a decade, the planet, your living room and your carbon footprint will all benefit from you owning a real Christmas tree to celebrate the festive season with. Merry Christmas. I think most of us sure love the smell of an authentic tree. It reminds me of Christmas for sure. Well, what's next? Let's move on. Looks like Sally LePage is answering our content producer Otis's secret Santa question. Sally, you better try and find out. Why are Santa's elves so small? Okay, okay, I can definitely work with that. As an evolutionary biologist myself, I am certainly used to thinking about why species are the way they are. But in my mind, elves are usually tall and powerful, like in Lord of the Rings. I mean, I can't imagine Legolas in a tiny little hat and stripy stockings carving wooden toys for kids. I need to find someone with specialist knowledge about the Christmas elf species. And I happen to know just the person. Dimitra Fimi is an expert in fantasy literature at the University of Glasgow, particularly the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, for some reason... Elves and other magical beings don't tend to show up much in the fossil record. I have no idea why. And so I asked Dimitra, where does most of our elfidence come from? Definitely from the 1860s and on, we see a lot of images of Santa accompanied by elves who helped him make the toys. So that goes back to traditional beliefs about elves helping people. You know, we have in, in older times brownies or hobs or hobgoblins. The elves can make things in the traditional belief. So you've mentioned hobgoblins and brownies and fairies. Do you think that 
these are different entities and we're just getting a bit looser in how we're naming them? They were always looser. So the names have always fluctuated. It's actually, if anything, today, we more or less stick to alphabarian. These are the most widespread, the most commonly known ones. So it's actually become less variable. That suggests that to look at a, a biological cause for how they're related to each other and, and why Christmas elves are small, actually, we shouldn't pay too much attention to the English name that we give them. No, not at all. No, it's about their nature. It's about what they do and what is their role in, you know, in, in the way we understand the world around us. Dimitra Fimi there. And that means I need to know who the Christmas elves are most closely related to if I want to find out why they're so small. And who better to ask than a biologist who specialises in both evolutionary family trees and magical creatures, Dominic Evangelista, from, rather aptly, Adelphi University. I promise I am not making it up. And it turns out he has been tackling this very question. I collected all of this data about all of these different kinds of elves and other creatures which we hypothesized were closely related. This was information on their morphology, so how they look, information on their behavior. And we have one group in our tree that we call the true elves. These are where the elves from Lord of the Rings, like Elrond and Legolas, uh, this is where they go. They're large, tall, very humanoid. We had another grouping, which we can call dwarves. And these are generally less humanoid dwarves, obviously shorter than the true elves. And then we had a final grouping in our tree that we call the pixies. This is a new nomenclature, uh, uh, excuse me, nomenclature. Anyway, in the pixies, these are small, but they have different kind of magical powers than either dwarves or elves. For our discussion, the most important grouping, the dwarves, obviously dwarves, we think of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but you've put Christmas elves in with the dwarves. Can you explain your reasoning behind that? Yeah, that's probably our most interesting finding here. When you think about it, it does make a lot of sense. You mentioned Snow White's Seven Dwarves, and I think there's a lot of similarities between Snow White's Seven Dwarves and Christmas Elves. They're, they're both very short. They're both kind of cheerful. Well, I guess some of them are cheerful. A few are grumpy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, at least one. And if we're comparing to like other dwarves, like in Lord of the Rings, these are creatures that like to build things. They're very crafty. Um, they're good with their hands. They have lots of tools. And that is, I think, the main feature of Christmas elves. Did they come from an ancestral elf-like creature that was small and then stayed small? Or was the ancestral relative of all of these groups tall and Christmas elves have since evolved to be small? This is a good question. With the knowledge that we have presently, the answer to this question is not really known. It could go either way. Every species on earth, including Christmas elves and the other magical creatures, they are products of both their ancestry and who they originated from and products of their modern adaptations. So it's unclear yet if Christmas elves form is more adaptive to their current conditions or their form is inherited from their ancestor. Dominic Evangelista there. So the question remains, are Christmas elves small because they evolved from small dwarves? And so it's all just chance. Or is there an adaptive advantage to being small? 
I figured elves are somewhat like humans, you know, so I should speak to someone who has looked at how and why body size has changed in the various human species across the millennia. And that led me to Manuel Will from the University of Tübingen. There's one really cool thing that we could use also for the elves. It's the so-called hobbit from Flores. Of course. Homo floresiensis, right, from an, uh, the island of Flores in Southeast Asia. And that one is really cool, not just because it's dubbed the Hobbit, <laughs> which I like a lot, but also it only stood about a bit more than one meter. So these creatures lived on the earth around 100,000 years ago. That's already when our species Homo sapiens existed. Do you think that it's possible to know if Christmas elves just evolved from another dwarf-like creature that was small and so a small by chance? or whether it was because of an adaptation. I think that's super difficult to disentangle because it's basically unknown. But I would venture for another kind of explanation. It is an adaptive explanation, which I think could explain the small body size in elves. And it's so-called island dwarfism. So again, we talk about dwarves here as well, but about islands. And there's a really cool thing with many animals, not just humans, that when you see them living on isolated islands... There's a cool thing that normally larger bodied animals get smaller, they dwarf, so to speak. And that probably has to do with the fact that on these islands, it's much more difficult to get enough food to sustain large bodies. But also at the same time, there's less pressure of predators. So things that might kill and eat you yourself. Normally a good buffer against that is having a large body, but you don't even need it anymore. And funny enough, that's still the most parsimonious explanation for why Homo floresiensis is so small likely because it's an adaptation to the island living on Flores. So the real-life hobbits started off a little bit bigger and then became smaller as they evolved isolated on this island. Exactly, because the current idea about the family tree of Homo floresiensis is that Homo floresiensis is descendant of Homo erectus, which is much older and much larger. It's not, I mean, it's not definitely proven, but it's certainly my favourite hypothesis. And it could work for the elves. That is also a very isolated environment where they just don't, maybe they don't get enough food from Santa, but certainly there's also no predator there for them, right? So maybe they just don't have to have big bodies. That was Manuel, Will, and I think we've solved it. Comparing Christmas elves to Tolkien's elves turns out to be a red herring, and Santa's elves have actually evolved from dwarves, which explains why they're so good at crafting things. And so Father Christmas probably took a small group of dwarves to the North Pole, where they were then cut off from mixing with the other dwarf species, and over time, they shrank in size due to island dwarfism. I hope that's cleared everything up for you, Otis. And all that remains is to have your elf a merry little Christmas. You might have cleared it up, Sally, but that's definitely going to take me a while to get over. From baffling British weather, sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic, and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com/short, or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. For now, we're answering each other's Xmas questions here at The Naked Scientists. Well, who's next, you ask? Let's check in on Katie King. Oh, wait. She's answering my question. Yippee!
My question for CSSSSSSS is, how drunk is Santa at the end of Christmas Eve? Hmm. I'm guessing the simple answer of very won't quite cut it. Being the boozy Brits that we are, let's ask the wonderful British public what they leave out for Santa. Mince, pie and brandy. A single malt whiskey. Tenants lager and fondant fancies. Santa always gets sherry. A glass of sherry and a carrot. Mince pies, carrots and milk. Santa loves a gem beam in my house. Rich tea biscuits, milk and your remote control for the telly whilst he was having his biscuits. So on my list, the main culprits are sherry, whiskey, the odd can of beer and some milk. OK, now time for some maths. And who better else to help me out but the one and only Christmas Carol, Carol Vorderman. So I've looked up how many million households in Britain have children in them. But there are five million of those households. And then based on your superb search case, I've cut it proportionately. So let's say two-fifths give Santa sherry, one-fifth whiskey, one-fifth beer and one-fifth milk. Mm, The milk's not going to have much of an effect, I don't think. Not even warmed up. I always give him sherry, you know. He told me once, fact, that he prefers sherry to whiskey. Did he? I'm just putting it out there. So sherry comes in at 20% strength, whiskey at 40, not surprisingly. Not stronger. And beer at 4%. Don't argue. Others will say other beers are available at higher strengths. I'm saying (laughs) saying 4%. It makes my numbers a lot easier. Right. And then obviously a serving size. 50 millilitres. It's quite... That's quite generous. Big. That is very generous. Lucky Santa. But then you see on Christmas Eve, people are feeling generous. It's a generous time of year. 50 mils for Santa. The beer, I'm going with a small bottle. Yeah, I can't imagine Santa would want to drink a pint at each stop. Well, that's a lot. It's too much. So um, <laughs> so I'm giving him a small bottle small of bottle beer. small bottle for Santa. But healthy proportions of sherry and whiskey. So if we multiply all of those up, that a serving of sherry for Santa will be one unit of alcohol. Whiskey, two units of alcohol. And the beer, one and a half units of alcohol. What we find is the total number of alcoholic units given to Santa in the form of sherry is 2 million units. 2 million. <laughs> yeah, 2 million. Wow. Whiskey, it's another 2 million units. Oh, boom. And, uh, and the beer, 1.5 million units. So let's add them all up. 2 plus 2 plus 1.5 is 5.5 million oh. units of alcohol given to Santa on Christmas Eve, just when he arrives and then leaves Britain. Thanks for your help, Carol. I can't believe Santa is drinking a whopping 5.5 million units of alcohol from the UK alone. Let's hope the milk is enough to line that stomach. Hmm, Not so sure. But what I really want to know is what is happening chemically when Santa is drinking alcohol. David Nutcracker from Imperial College London is going to tell us a bit more. Well, the first thing he gets is a taste of the smell. And then the alcohol flows down through his mouth and his esophagus into his stomach, gets absorbed into the blood uh, and then goes into the liver. And in the liver, alcohol is broken down to something called acetaldehyde. And that then flows around the body and causes the redness that uh, Santa's famous for in his cheeks. 
Let's be fair, red cheeks isn't the first thing that comes to mind when I think about the effects of alcohol. Tell us, David, how does booze affect our brains? The key is when the ethanol gets into the brain, it starts to increase the activity of GABA. Now, GABA is the brain's main calming inhibitory transmitter. When you increase the effects of GABA, then you begin to feel calm yourself and uh, and more sociable and I guess that's where his you know, ho-ho-ho comes from. How much alcohol do we need to drink to activate this GABA system? Well, the first few molecules of alcohol going into the brain start to turn on the GABA system. It's by and large the first, we would say like the first two or three units of alcohol. They are largely working to increase the effects of GABA, to get you into the party mood, yeah. so to speak. Christmas spirit. <laughs> that's exactly right. If Santa drinks all of this sherry and he's got thousands of glasses in his system, what happens then? Well, well, let's hope he doesn't get that many, unless he's extraordinarily tolerant. But what begins to happen is your blood alcohol level rises, then alcohol starts to block the glutamate receptors in the brain. Now, glutamate is the neurotransmitter that is critical for keeping you awake and for laying down memories. When you block those glutamate receptors, you start to forget things and that's a big problem for Santa because he might not remember where he's got to go for the next child or the next children. He might forget some presents. Indeed he might uh, and then he might potentially even forget how to get home and get lost and uh, who knows where he might end up. Rudolph to the rescue we hope. If Santa is made up of a similar composition to us how big would his liver need to be to break down all of this alcohol that he is consuming in that one night? Well you know one does wonder what's uh, inside that abdomen of his I, you know let's hope it is a really big liver so he can cope with all the uh, the free drinks that people give him let's hope so interestingly david nutt has developed an alcohol alternative called sentia that stimulates the gaba system which makes us feel relaxed without blocking the glutamate system so we can still walk in a straight line afterwards i asked david what would happen to santa if we switched out sherry for his alcohol alternative He would feel mellow, he would feel relaxed, but he wouldn't run the risk of forgetting where he's got to go next and falling off of his sledge and disappearing down the wrong chimney. That's what we should be doing. We should give Santa your alcohol alternative rather than sherry, just so that there's no risk. Well, you can never say no, but (laughs) certainly you could reduce his risk. And that's a really interesting idea. I wonder if I can do that. Yeah. I, I have my, uh, my botanical drink. I could put that out for Santa and see if he likes it. Definitely. <laughs> Ask for some feedback. Well, he never gives you feedback. He just <laughs> eats the pie and his reindeer seem to eat the carrots, but he never replies to my letter. He doesn't respond to my letters either, so let's not worry about that one. Thank you to Christmas Carol and David Nutcracker for helping me answer the question of how drunk is Santa at the end of Christmas Eve? My answer is simple. He must be a very merry soul. Happy Christmas. Thanks, Katie, although I think you better get a Christmas carol back on the line, and this time, Vorderman, I expect no skimping on the alcoholic percentages. Please do remember that any drinking habits or feats on Christmas Eve carried out by Santa are not to be attempted at home, although I do know that a few of you on the naughty list might give it a good go. Right, let's see what Trisha Smith is up to. If I remember rightly, she is answering Sally's question. How do you make the perfect snowball? Are we still talking about booze? I visited the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge to find out what makes snow stick. Snow is a mixture of ice in the form of pretty small crystals 
and air and nearly always some liquid water as well. Does snow always have a little bit of water in it or can it sometimes exist without water? This is not completely known at the moment, I think, but what we suspect is true is that there is always a tiny bit of liquid water in snow. If the temperature of the snow is not too far below uh, zero Celsius, say down to minus minus five, minus ten, then there can be a noticeable amount of water, maybe one percent. So why is it that some snow will pack down when I when I squeeze it and some won't? The main difference between kinds of snow that will compress into a nice snowball, the kind that you can throw satisfactorily, and the kind that doesn't, that just stays as powder and falls apart again, is really its temperature. The powdery stuff is too cold. What you want to happen when you make a snowball is that you want to weld the ice crystals together. And the way you do that is you apply some pressure to the to the snowball, you squeeze it with your hands, Ice is unusual as a material in that when you apply pressure to it, its melting point actually decreases. So it melts a little bit when you squeeze it, and the water then refreezes when you take the pressure off, so when you stop squeezing the snowball. But now what you've got is ice crystals that have been welded to each other by, by more ice. So the thing becomes mechanically stronger than it was so it's a little bit denser and quite a lot stronger, so it won't fall apart immediately. When I was at university, I showed an experiment where they hung a metal wire on a cube of ice and they hung weights off each end. And what happened was the wire passed through the block of ice, but it didn't leave a gap. There was ice left behind as well. So can you explain that experiment to me? That experiment is usually called regelation. That just means refreezing. And it's really a good model of what happens when you make a snowball. The weighted wire is applying pressure to the ice, and that succeeds in melting the ice. But above the wire, the pressure is is lower again, so the water refreezes to ice. So what happens is that there is a little area of melted ice below the wire, but reformed ice above the wire. So the wire just travels down through the ice, refreezing behind it as it goes, and then eventually the wire drops out at the bottom, but the ice hasn't been cut into two. One of the interesting properties of snow, or of water and ice, is that ice floats on water. So are those things related? Yes, these things are related. What happens in ice is that the Water molecules, the H2O molecules, they arrange themselves in a very specific way. The forces between the molecules are very strong, so they have a very fixed idea about how to arrange themselves. And it's actually quite open. If you melt it into water, the average distance between the molecules actually decreases. So water is more dense than ice, and that's the reason why ice floats in water. And it's also the reason why the melting point of ice decreases when you squeeze it because you're trying to force it into a smaller volume and it can do that by turning into water. Where in the world would we find snow that is the best for making snowballs? It would need to be somewhere not too cold, so I wouldn't go to the middle of Antarctica to um, have a snowball fight. I think we just find powder snow there. I think you'd want to be somewhere on the edges of regions that tended to get a lot of snow 
edges of mountain ranges, fringes of cold regions. Who'd have thought a snowball fight in Antarctica might not be the best idea? Well, just to be sure, I reached out to my friend who's in Antarctica right now. She agreed to go outside, make a snowball, and let us know how it went. My name's Becky Dell, and I'm a glaciologist working at the University of Cambridge. Currently, I'm in Antarctica, on Alexander Island, living in Fossil Bluff Hut, working on Georgia 6 ice shelf. Luckily, it was pretty snowy this morning, so the snow is now fairly wet and malleable. However, a couple of days ago, it was much drier here, and it was almost too powdery to form a snowball. I'm going to try and make a snowball now, and I'll talk you through what happens. I'm not going to lie, the snow is actually pretty tough. It's formed a ball pretty quickly, but it's a fairly angular, jagged ball, and I'm having to apply quite a lot of pressure. So rather than a ball, I'd call this a cube. Um, I've made a snow cube. No one to throw it at, though, because they're all inside having a cup of coffee. So I'm going to go and join them. I'm not sure I'd want to be hit by a snow cube. Sounds painful. So, there you have it. Leave the skiing for the mountaintops, because the snow in the valley is much more likely to weld together into the perfect snowball. Before I left, Gareth had one more very important piece of advice for me. The very best snow for a snowball is the snow that's right next to you, because that's when you want to make a snowball. So if it snows in your garden, use that snow. Definitely a point well made, Gareth. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire. Telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Right now, you're listening to a Christmas special of The Naked Scientists. And we've got a science secret Santa on the go. We're helping each other answer Christmas questions. It's time to see what Otis is up to. And if I recall, I think I last saw him up in the office. Better nip in and see how he's getting on. Trisha wants to know, how many carrots does Rudolph need to eat in order to circumnavigate the whole globe? Hold on, I need to figure out an answer to this? But I'm an assistant content producer, not one of the actual naked scientists. I know, I'll just find a scientist who can. Ah, here are the best zoologists who work with reindeer. Gabi Wagner, I work at the Norwegian Institute of Bioeconomy Research and I research reindeer husbandry. Hello, my name is Otis from The Naked Scientists. I need your help to figure out how many carrots Rudolph needs to eat in order to circumnavigate the whole globe in one night. Ah, well, magical flying reindeer may be a bit difficult to get hold of. So what you're saying is we'd have a better answer if we could test it? Theoretically, yes. Okay then, time to steal a reindeer. I'm sorry, what was that? Let's grab one and meet Gabby in Norway. I hope you won't be too long. What's that? In the sky. It looks like it's heading straight towards me. 
Are you okay? Okay. Ah, I found us a reindeer to test with. Apparently, he's owned by Vixen. That's what it says on the name tag. That's not what I was expecting. But when is science ever something you can accurately predict? This is interesting. Usually only females have antlers in winter. But this is a male. He's castrated, of course. Otherwise, he would already have lost his antlers about a month ago. I think he's built to pull sledges. That would explain why he is so tame. He didn't beat you up that badly. He's bigger than I imagined. How heavy is he? He's 140 kilos. He is in very good condition. He must have had some Christmas food to weigh that much at this time of year. Okay, but back to the main question. How many carrots would it take for him to get all the way around the world? Now, obviously, he couldn't circumnavigate the Earth at the equator. He can't sweat after all, and he can't lose any heat with that fur. See, he has a thick coat of underwool and these thicker, longer hairs called guard hair. Not only can he trap air between the hair of his coat, but each one of the guard hairs is hollow in addition. That gives him superb insulation against the cold. I was wondering why he didn't seem phased by the cold. Minus 40 degrees Celsius is no problem, but anything above, say, 25 degrees Celsius would be a challenge, and he'd have to massively increase his metabolic rate to get rid of the heat. Is that the only feature they have to survive cold temperatures? Reindeer have special noses, which they use to save energy. They have scrolled structures in their noses, a bit like a heat pump, and they can use the extra surface to warm up the cold outside air in winter. When it's too hot, or when they work hard... They have to pant like dogs. We couldn't get him to walk anywhere along the equator. He'd die of heat stroke. So does that mean they're mostly situated in colder countries? You can find them in Scandinavia, Russia, Siberia, Northern America and Greenland. You can even find them in Iceland and Scotland. That's a lot of places. Do they just walk there? Walking on frozen ground or snow is of course no problem. Their feet act like snowshoes. That's why they're so good at pulling sledges. They can also use their hooves like chisels to dig for food under the snow. Most importantly for us, their feet can also act as paddles. Reindeer are very powerful swimmers. The whole hair of their fur acts also like a built-in buoyancy aid. That means rivers and fjords are not a problem along the route. The oceans, however, are, so we just have to assume he could take a terrestrial route for our calculations. On the flight over here, the reindeer was galloping in the air, so it stands to reason that it will require the same amount of energy. They have been documented to walk up to 5,500 kilometres or 3,410 miles in a year. Now, on Christmas food, say, that's special reindeer pellets for you, with about 11,000 kilojoules of digestible energy per kilo food... Our big boy here, working hard, he would need about five kilos of food a day. He is, after all, a ruminant who needs a lot of rest to digest his food. At an average walking distance of about 25 kilometers or 15 miles a day, he would need about 640 days to circumnavigate the Arctic Circle. To cover the caloric needs with only about 1,700 kilojoules in a kilo of carrots... We need about 20.4 tons of carrots. Right, so let's scale that up. If we base our calculations off the fact that the Earth is 40,075 kilometres in circumference and that Santa would need to travel across the sea from country to country, 
I've estimated that the distance Rudolph would need to travel to be 160,000 kilometers. Of course, this doesn't factor in the distance between each street and each city. But based off this, how many carrots would a reindeer need to eat? If this reindeer was to circumnavigate the whole globe, he'd need 204 tons of carrots, or 4,080,000 carrots. I hate to break the news to you, but reindeer don't eat carrots. He can't bite the carrots, he hasn't got the teeth for that. But tradition states you leave a carrot for the reindeer. I can't believe I stole this reindeer for nothing. You stole the reindeer? How? And from where? Oh, I just found one in the North Pole. It was standing next to this rather large man with a white beard dressed in red. So it was you who stole my poor reindeer? Wait, no, please, it was all in the name of science, I swear. I'm going to put you in a ho-ho holding cell. No! Ho-ho-ho! I, um... I'm not really sure what to say. Uh... We, act, we actually really need Otis for cutting and gluing our audio together. I should probably get in touch with Chris. Well, look, whilst I try and sort this out, why don't you hear how I attempted to answer Katie's question? She wanted to know, why is it so hard to make a Christmas hit? I started off by reaching out to Professor of Psychology at Goldsmiths, Daniel Mullensiefen. Oh, Otis, you've really gone and done it this time, mate. I would wonder whether you could answer this question empirically, so with science and empirical evidence. So one thing that you would have to do is define a Christmas song or a Christmas hit, as you put it as well. Does it need to be commercially successful? And do you want to measure that by its position in the charts or the revenue it it generates uh, during a certain period? Then the second question is, does Elton John or Ed Sheeran, does that qualify as potential music for a Christmas hit just because it's released at the end of November? Or do you really mean uh, Christmas music in terms of it has a Christmas theme? Looks like I'm going to need a hand. Luckily, Ian Cross, Emeritus Professor of Music and Science at Cambridge University, agreed to meet me at West Road Concert Hall to iron out the creases. Good you could operationalise as effective in removing money from people's wallets. What it is that does that, what it is about a song that does that, is a variety of things. It's it's the structure of the song, but it's also what it's up against, what competition it's up against. New Christmas songs are a real problem because they're up against an intense amount of competition from the songs that are trotted out year after year after year and flourish for the Christmas period. And competition is further exacerbated by the length of the festive period. A summer hit can be popular in the Northern Hemisphere during, say, June and September. And the same song can be a summer hit and popular in the Southern Hemisphere in other months. So this is different to Christmas, which means that you have a lot of competition in these, say, six or seven weeks around Christmas. And that's not all. So in this country, it's getting dark, it's getting miserable. And it turns out that when it gets dark and miserable, we tend to prefer music that is not very arousing, often calm or melancholic. On the other hand, as it gets lighter, we tend to prefer music that is more arousing, more urgent, more intense. Now, Christmas is happening at the same time across the globe. So here it's getting cold and miserable. In Australia, it's doing the opposite. It's getting sunny. Admittedly, it is bizarre to have Christmas on the beach in 
the 18-hour day sunshine. This is something you've tried and tested? It is. <laughs> it's, it's very odd, yes. But the same music is likely to pervade the environment. It might be that Slade's, um, and here it is, Merry Christmas, is a little more popular in Australia than it might be in the UK, simply because it's very upbeat, very arousing, and it fits with the, the long days in Australia. Firstly, a Christmas hit has to be Xmasy, and I'm not going to be moved on that, Okay, I think the best thing I can do is catch up with a rather talented friend of mine. It's time to take a look at those popular Christmas hits and see what I can learn. Conrad Godfrey, he's a musician, YouTube curator, transcriber, and he also sings in a barbershop quartet called Sound Hypothesis. They're the current UK national champions. You know, as you do. Merry Christmas, Conrad. Merry Christmas, Harry. Come on in. Thanks very much. Where's the piano? Through here. Conrad tells me that a lot of popular Christmas music employs a compositional technique known as chromaticism. I better let him explain this one, eh? Chromaticism meaning kind of the colour that you get when you introduce, if we're talking about the keyboard, it's, it's going beyond the white notes and into the black notes, to, to put it simply. So let's think, talk about um, White Christmas, for example. How does that go? It goes... I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. It goes completely out of key and, and explores loads of different kind of terrain. Is that normal of popular music, this exploration of the keyboard? No, I would say it, it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, if we take a song like Justin Bieber's Mistletoe, that's an example of a Christmas song that I would say actually is basically a pop song. And I'd say one of the reasons for that is because it's not using a lot of this jazzy influence stuff. It's just using very simple four chord progressions and the melody is kind of just staying very tonal. And the chords it's using and the notes it's using, it's very kind of... It doesn't really go away from kind of any of these very simple kind of notes that you would find in the scale. You could think of making it a little bit more sort of Christmassy or something... Um, by simply for the chords he's playing you could add in what in the jazz world they call like upper extension kind of do something like this perhaps something like that make it a bit more Christmassy right um, it's the most beautiful time of the year lights fill the streets spreading so much cheer I should be playing in the winter snow funny how that kind of drums up nostalgia because it, it does it feels more Christmassy to me yeah right 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 it does and it's 60s 50s inspired orchestral sounds really where there's so much hidden complexity there's lots going on and you don't really notice this when you're listening to the song all those complexities all those like really complex key changes and like rich jazzy voicings are just really hidden I and mean, I think that's a lot of what that kind of nostalgic style did so well there's this other theme that I've noticed in some of these Christmassy songs when I was doing a bit of research that that I don't really think I've heard anyone comment on, but it's actually this kind of trick of using the descending major scale to evoke the sound of church bells on Christmas Day, right? So I, th I think that songs, for example, like... Walking in a winter wonderland is the same thing, like... And have yourself a merry little Christmas as well, you've got... That kind of, and so it's, it's pulling on these kind of themes that we associate as well with nostalgia, with Christmas. Exactly, and I think you see that in quite a lot of arrangements. So you should look out for that one, the descending scale to evoke the bells. Conrad gave me some final advice. If you aren't going to use his techniques, 
you're going to need to throw in a lot of jingle bells or reference to this time of year instead. A little bit like Justin Bieber's Mistletoe. I think what I'm learning is that tradition really plays on nostalgia. And that certainly seems to be the case for Christmas music. Now, there's an interesting effect of what happens when you're exposed to music continuously, the same piece of music. Initially, your preference for it increases, and then it probably decreases because you've been overexposed. So does that mean that uh, when I was younger, I might love something by Boney M, but over the years, that's going to start to decrease, and I might start to dislike the Christmas music that I did as a, as a, as a youngster? That's possible, but there's also another effect, which is that we tend to form quite intense affective attachments to the music that we heard in early teenage years when we were forming our identity. And that attachment to that music tends to persist, irrespective, one might almost say, of quality. You know, Katie, I really don't think I actually got to the bottom of it. The main reason Christmas hits seem so popular, I think, is due to them being nostalgic. Luckily, Julia Ravy is looking into just that. Right now, you're listening to a Christmas special of The Naked Scientists. Julia is trying to find out why Chris feels nostalgic around this time of year. I'm out and about in Cambridge and it is definitely beginning to look a lot like Christmas. There are beautiful decorations everywhere, twinkling lights, people out and about shopping... But for me, it isn't just about the decorations or the music or the food. It's about that feeling of nostalgia Christmas brings. Why is it that we look longingly back to the past? I'm hoping nostalgia psychologist Jacob Jewell can help me understand more about what this feeling is. So if you look nostalgia up in the dictionary, it's going to say that nostalgia is a sentimental longing and wistful affection for the past. When people are nostalgic. They tend to reflect fondly um, on aspects of the past. They tend to reflect on certain time periods like high school or primary school or college or university or young adulthood. But almost always they're surrounded by close others. So uh, close friends or close family. And nostalgia is largely a kind of a positive emotional experience. But sometimes it does uh, contain, I guess what I would say, the tinge of sadness. However, the negativity or this a little bit of sadness in nostalgia is almost always outweighed by the positive experience of nostalgia. And does nostalgia serve a purpose for us? From a psychological perspective, uh, yeah, it does serve a purpose for us. So some things that often trigger nostalgia is negative experiences. So one big trigger of nostalgia is feeling lonely. So when people are alone, they don't have a, a, a close sense of support, at least immediately with them. They tend to, to feel nostalgic in response to this. And research has shown that nostalgia actually, in turn, boosts a sense of social connectedness uh, with other people. Uh, Similarly, when people feel that life is meaningless or perhaps they're bored, that triggers a sense of nostalgia. And nostalgia, in turn, increases uh, a sense of meaning in life. So its primary purpose really is to help people cope with negativity and promote more positivity. Does nostalgia alter our perception of the past? Almost definitely. When people reflect nostalgically on the past, they they view it through kind of rose-tinted glasses. So oftentimes seeing it necessarily more positive than it was. And we all know that our memories, uh, generally speaking, are uh, susceptible to a lot of biases. So I'm guessing that when people reflect nostalgically in the past, they tend to give it a, a bit of a positive spin. 
I was listening to Christmas songs the other day and I noticed just how many of them reference the past. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear Last Christmas, I Gave You My Heart. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. So what is it about Christmas or the holiday season in particular that has us all reminiscing? Neuroscientist and author Dean Burnett is definitely the right person to ask. Well, like I say our strongest memories will come from our childhood. Obviously, that's when we are developing. Your childhood experiences tend to be your most formative. And it's not like a logical thing. A lot of the things our brain prioritizes when it comes to experiences are emotion. Those strong emotional memories will usually override objectively useful ones. And when you're a child, what is more emotionally stimulating than Christmas? You know, you're not in school anymore. You've got time off. You're with your family all the time. You get given loads of presents and there's lots of colourful things everywhere, music that you can dance to and all the treats and things. So, yeah, when you're a kid, Christmas is an extremely powerful experience. And especially when you're younger and like maybe you don't understand, like, all I know is when I see trees and baubles, I get lots of good stuff. So I'm, I, must, I must remember this. <laughs> this is clearly quite indicative of good times ahead. So if you, you know, as you grow up, you hear this particular piece of music and you associate that with all these good times you hear it again and those memories will come flooding back it's triggering the connections so like christmas in a way because i feel like every year we have the same music the same food we normally interact with the same people it's a bit like a groundhog day all of the same cues mm. so is that yeah. is that a big influence over sort of triggering memories of the past yeah if you think of it like a crossword you know when you're trying to fill in the blanks but half of them are already done then it's a lot easier to recognise the words and stuff like that. So when you surround yourself with the usual cues of Christmas, it'll make the existing memories of Christmas much easier to trigger. It doesn't take much to, to fire them up. Dean talking about the familiar things around us at Christmas got me thinking about all the things that we have in our family home and we get them out every single year. And actually today is a very important day because my family are putting up the Christmas tree. Hello. Well, that's the doorbell. The Christmas tree's just arrived and the real tree. Oh, As I'm very sadly not at home at the minute, my mum and sister gave me a tour of all the decorations they put up so far. Well, we have the lovely tree in the hall. The snowmen are looking a little bit worse for wear, not going to lie. I think it's all the years, the build-up of sellotape. <laughs> We've got the Santas on the fireplace. Yeah. And again, one of the Santas actually lost a foot. How long have we had them? 20 years, probably. Um, a long, long time, long time. How many cribs do we have in that house? At least 10, I would say. I'll show you. I've got, I haven't got them all out up yet. Also got that lovely one that we made out of ice lolly sticks. Um, oh, yes. That's going up tomorrow. I know the angel Gabriel looks really angry because I did that one with a red pen. A lot of them look like they're being decapitated now, but every year I rebalance them and get that. <laughs> the Christmas Robin, that's a new one. That's a nice one, I like him. I couldn't resist it, but I'm beginning to regret it now because I've still got half a room full of decorations to put up. And the house looks pretty full. We've been working on it all weekend, but almost there. All right, see you soon. Can't wait to see you next week for Christmas. Bye! So essentially my home turns into a Christmas grotto every year and we keep hold of all of the things that are important to us even if they are broken. So Dean, why is it that we cling on to these traditions? We are, you know, we're a very social species. My one example of things we need is a sense of control. The ability to 
you know, right, this is the routine. This is how it works. It's reassuring to say, we know Christmas goes ahead. It goes A, B, C, D, E. That's how it happens. So you stick to that because this is your routine and you don't like to make you know, play around with established patterns. So if you're going into you know, something as important as Christmas, which you are extremely emotionally invested in, you want as much control and certainty as you can, which means we, um, we stick to the tradition, we stick to the routines and we prioritize them. And when other people say you do something different, that's no, 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 that upsets my system. That upsets my expectations. I don't like the idea of doing that. It's, it's just reassuring for the brain in a subconscious way for so many reasons. And Jacob, what is it about traditions that makes us feel nostalgic? Traditions are important to us largely because they give us a sense of meaning in life. And that, along with kind of all the sentiment, all of the social connectedness, really kind of helps heighten the accessibility of the memories uh, and makes it a good thing to be nostalgic about. It seems like our need for stability in the form of traditions and the importance of Christmas solidified in our early years makes us reminisce more around the holiday season. We whip out the same music, deckies, see the same people. It's almost like a time machine back to Christmas's past, giving us that nostalgic feeling. On that note, my hot chocolate is ready, mince pie is warm, and it is time to put on my favourite Christmas film, which I've watched every December for the past 20 years. Ah, it takes me back. And that's the lot. Let's check back in and see what the rest of the team thought of Chris's Naked Scientist Secret Santa. What a great Christmas present. Thanks, Otis. But I'm not sure I'll be able to look at a carrot the same way again. There's no way it can be too cold for a snowball fight. I'm going to have to change me Christmas tree next year. Yeah, okay, Chris. That was a pretty great Christmas present. I know, I know. I do deserve a round of Santa applause. I guess some things do never change at the Naked Scientist. A little more eggnog, Katie? Yeah, go on then, Julia. Hey, whilst we're at it, let's take a quick Elfie to remember it all. Well, it's been a year of ups and downs, but we have tried to stay with you every step of the way, keeping you up to date with the latest in science, medicine and engineering. Now, we're not back now until 2022, but we'll be there bright and early to see you on the other side of New Year. And in the meantime, if you have a science question that you can't answer by yourself, why not drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can join us on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. The only thing that remains to be said now really is thank you very much for listening and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. Supported by Rolls-Royce, I'm Harry Lewis. Thanks for listening and until next year, goodbye.